Dr. Holmes, thank you for the honor of being here today. It's always humbling to speak to seminarians. And as the reading of the text, Psalm 137 testifies, and as we sung, the ominousness of that psalm is beyond anything anyone can abide without trepidation. With regard to the historical context and authorship of Psalm 137, we cannot know for certain who wrote the psalm or when he wrote it. The theory of Davidic authorship is certainly incorrect, and the Septuagint's attribution of the psalm to Jeremiah is also highly doubtful. Why? Because Jeremiah was never exiled to Babylon, but remained in Jerusalem after its destruction. Perhaps Jeremiah could have written the psalm as a vicarious mourner for the Babylonian captives, but that is also doubtful. That leaves us with the high probability of an unknown poet who could have written the poem as an eyewitness to the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 587 B.C. Or perhaps a later poet who wrote the poem in mournful retrospect about the atrocities inflicted upon the Jews by their Babylonian captors. Although we cannot know for certain the date and authorship of the psalm, we can know with absolute certainty why the psalm was written. It was written to commemorate and to lament the siege of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. When Nebuchadnezzar's chief butcher, Nebuzaradan, completed the siege of Jerusalem by raising her walls, burning down the city, slaughtering her citizens, and destroying the temple. Though this story is debated as to its authenticity, the Babylonian Talmud nonetheless says, with graphic and horrific description, that Nebuchadnezzar sent Nebuzaradan 300 mules laden with iron axes that could break iron, but they were all shattered on a single gate of Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan desired to leave the city, but said, I am afraid lest I meet the same fate which befell Sennacherib. Thereupon a voice cried out to Nebuzaradan, Thou leaper, thou son of a leaper, leap, Nebuzaradan, for the time has come for the sanctuary to be destroyed and the temple to be burnt. Nebuzaradan had but one axe left, the Talmud says. So he went and smote the gate with the head of the axe, and it opened. Then he hewed down the Jews as he proceeded, until he reached the temple. Upon setting fire to the temple, the temple tried to rise up, but was trodden down from heaven, as it is written, the Lord hath trodden down the virgin daughter of Judah as in a winepress. Nebuzaradan was now elated with his triumph when a voice came forth from heaven saying to him, Thou hast slain a dead people. Thou hast burned a temple already burned. After that, 
Nebuzaradan saw the blood of Zechariah boiling, and he said, What is this? They answered, It is the blood of sacrifices which have been spilled. Then he said, Bring some animal blood, and I will compare them to see whether they are alike. So he slaughtered animals and compared their blood to Zechariah's blood, but they were dissimilar. Then he threatened, Tell me the secret, or if not, I will tear your flesh with iron. They replied, This is the blood of a priest and a prophet who foretold the destruction of Jerusalem to the Israelites, and they killed him. Then Nebuzaradan said, I will appease for his blood. So he brought the scholars and slew them over Zechariah. Yet Zechariah's blood did not cease to boil. He then brought school children and slew them over Zechariah. But still Zechariah's blood did not rest. Then he brought the young priests and slew them over Zechariah's blood. But still his blood did not rest until he had slain 94,000 and still Zechariah's blood did not rest. Whereupon Nebuzaradan approached Zechariah's blood and he cried out, Zechariah, Zechariah, I have destroyed the flower of Jerusalem. Do you desire that I massacre them all? Straightway, Zechariah's blood rested, unquote. Another source tells us that, quote, when the Babylonians breached the walls of Jerusalem and entered the city, they inflicted the worst atrocities imaginable on Jerusalem's citizens, such as murder, rape, and most horrific of all, cutting babies out of mothers' wombs and bashing their heads against stone walls, unquote. It is that butchery, that slaughter, to which the author of Psalm 137 refers when he pens these words. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. The poet asks Yahweh to remember what Babylon has done to Jerusalem and to reward the Babylonians with the vengeance appropriate to such unspeakable atrocities, otherwise known as lex talionis, lex, the law, talionis, of retaliation. The lex talionis is thrice delineated in the Old Testament, epitomized by the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. While time does not permit a thorough discussion of why Jesus' commentary on the Lex Talionis in Matthew does not, I repeat, does not prohibit eye for eye, tooth for tooth vengeance, may it suffice to say that Jesus' exhortations to the other cheek, the other mile, and the other coat refer only to our responses to personal offenses and insults, not egregious or capital insults. 
After all, in the same context, Jesus teaches that unjustified anger amounts to murder and therefore deserves hellfire. Psalm 137 is not just a song of Lex Talionis, but it is also a psalm of malediction or imprecation. Malediction means the pronunciation of a curse by malicious words. Imprecation denotes a prayer for vengeance against an individual, or in this case, a prayer of vengeance against an evil empire and all its allies. Our hermeneutical discernment is never more trepidatious than when we encounter maledictory or imprecatory language, such as when David declares, quote, The righteous shall rejoice when they see God's vengeance. They will wash their feet in the blood of the wicked, unquote. Or when David says of those who hate God, quote, Do not I hate them, O Yahweh, who hate thee? I hate them with perfect hatred, unquote. We should note that the ultimate source of those quotes is messianic and not Davidic. We are equally tremulous when we contemplate this poet's imprecation that Yahweh would remember the children of Edom and the daughter of Babylon and destroy them, that Yahweh would blessedly and happily reward the Babylonians exactly as they deserve, even to the reciprocal extreme of dashing their little ones against the stones. Yet while we cringe at the thought of an infant's head being dashed against a stone, we should not let that horrific and disturbing image obscure the poetical majesty, prophetic import, and ethical force of this psalm. The poetical majesty of the poem derives from its kinetic and emotive imagery. The poem's prophetic import applies immediately to the destiny of historical Babylon, but ultimately to the destiny of spiritual Babylon, the global empire in which we ourselves are now momentarily captive. And the poem's ethical force emanates from the poet's recognition of God's righteous wrath and God's sovereign vengeance, and thus his invocation for lex talionis, God's perfect justice. Homiletically, the poem may be divided into six sections. Verses 1 and 2, the lamentation. Verse 3, the provocation. Verse 4, the interrogation. Verses 5 and 6, the declaration. Verse 7, the invocation. And verses 8 and 9, the imprecation. Let us note first the lamentation in verses 1 and 2. By the rivers of Babylon... There we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows, 
in the midst thereof. Their lamentation is a lamentation of captivity. For the Jews did not repose by the cool and gentle Jordan, but by the rivers of Babylon, the mighty Euphrates, the Tigris, and the Kibar, rivers that are the arteries of the enemy, the lifeblood of their idolatrous conquerors who blaspheme the true and living God and instead worship sticks and stones. Their lamentation is also one of passivity. We sat down. Sitting down indicates defeat, surrender, fatigue, helplessness, and even despair. As they watch the rivers of Babylon team and swirl and flow southward to the Persian Gulf, another fountain opens in Israel's soul. A fountain deeper and more bitter than the rivers of Babylon. And their lamentation becomes a lamentation of tearful memories. We wept, say they, when we remembered Zion. Their tears are homesick tears. They weep for their sore estate as captive strangers in a strange and hostile land. And they weep for their motherland from which they are now estranged. As the Euphrates and the Tigris flow from Babylon to the Persian Gulf, the Jews' tears flow from Babylon to their blessed homeland, Jerusalem. Finally, their lamentation is the lamentation of silence. We hung our hearts upon the willows. The songs of Zion... We're now unsung. Every tongue was still, and every harp was hushed. Dr. Fawcett notes that the harp was a ten-stringed instrument and the national instrument of the Hebrews. They used it, says he, not as the Greeks for expressing sorrow, but they played the harp on occasions of joy and praise. With the exception of the passage before us, biblio-historical instances of the harp confirm Fawcett's description of the harp as a musical instrument to express joy. For instance, David and the Israelites play on harps when the ark arrives in Jerusalem, and the Levites play harps at the dedication of Solomon's temple. But by the rivers of Babylon, no quill struck a single string. The harps were strung, but no joyful songs were sung, and no tongue told the joyful tale of a happy heart. Instead, willow branches were the arms most fitted to hold the silent harps. For like the Jews, the willows bowed and wept. But a sadistic sound from their Babylonian captors would break the sorrowful silence. A cruel provocation. Sing us a happy song, they mocked. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
Those wicked words came from the lips of those whom the psalmist calls they who carried us away, or our captors, and they who wasted us, or our tormentors. Captive to Babylon and tormented by Babylon, such was the awful dilemma of the Jews. No wonder they sat down and wept. No wonder they hung their harps upon the willows. For now added to their humiliation is the provocation of mockery. But let the Babylonians take note. He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. Indeed, wisdom warns Israel's captors and tormentors. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. One might think that the Babylonian mockery of the Jews would finally and fully dishearten the captives. But careful contemplation of the psalm notes an ironic reversal in the psalmist's tone after the provocative words. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But rather than surrendering to desperate circumstances and humiliating mockery, the psalmist responds with a defiant question. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? The how of verse 4 is not a how of impossibility. How could I possibly sing? But rather... It is a how of possibility, even a how of necessity. How could I possibly not sing? Despite their captivity, despite their torment, despite their sorrow, the poet asks, How shall we sing Yahweh's song in a strange land? The poet answers his own question by rebuking any thought of a songless sorrow. He says, If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. The poet cannot forget his beloved homeland. And so it is impossible that his right hand could forget its cunning dexterity upon the harp. His tongue will never cleave to the roof of his mouth, but his tongue must gladly sing because he remembers his highest joy, Jerusalem. But, The song that he will sing is not the song the Babylonians want to hear. 
The poet now strikes a minor chord that reverberates with a dark and ominous tone. Not an anthem to Zion, but an anathema to Babylon. And he sings. Remember, O Yahweh, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who ought to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. That is the song for Babylon. You will be destroyed. You will be rewarded. And your little ones will be dashed against the stones. That is, the kingdom of Babylon will be no more. And Babylon's progeny and posterity will disappear from the face of the earth. In similar language, Isaiah prophesied of Babylon's eventual demise. Their children, says Isaiah, shall also be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses shall be spoiled and their wives ravished. Behold, I will stir up the meads against them. Their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare the children. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us that Isaiah's prophecy and the psalmist's imprecation were fulfilled in October of 539 B.C. When the Persian king Cyrus the Great invaded, but Cyrus' invasion of Babylon did not occur without difficulty. Like the psalmist, Cyrus also would decry the rivers of Babylon. For Cyrus and his army to invade Babylon, he must first conquer Babylon's most important natural defenses, the rivers of Babylon. For Cyrus, the most problematic river was a tributary of the Tigris, which Herodotus calls the Gindes. The Gindes was particularly difficult to cross because of its deep channels and swift current. Hence, the Persian tongue calls the Jindis Sirwan, translated as the Shouting River or the Roaring River. Herodotus tells us that as Cyrus and his army stood on the brink of the Shouting River, one of Cyrus's sacred white stallions broke free and tried to cross the Sirwan alone. But the river's swift current was too strong for even such a mighty steed, and swept the horse away to his death. That event not only temporarily halted Cyrus's advance, it also infuriated him. He summoned his engineers and commanded them to devise a plan, a plan whereby 
the Persian army could safely cross the Shouting River. The Persians dug 360 channels, 180 on either side of the Sirwan, to diffuse the Shouting River and lower its waters, thus allowing Cyrus's army safe passage across the river. After three months' work, the army crossed the river, but then encountered another obstacle, the Euphrates. Yet another plan was devised to defeat the rivers of Babylon. Again, Herodotus tells us that Cyrus's army dug a canal to make the Euphrates diffuse, to make it shallower. And having accomplished that feat, the Persians crossed the Euphrates, invaded Babylon, and defeated their armies. Thus began Cyrus's reign over the Achmanidid Empire. And thus the psalmist's imprecation against the Babylonians was fulfilled. Babylon was destroyed, Babylon was rewarded, and Babylon's little children were dashed against the stones. But does the prophecy end there? And is the imprecation no longer in force? We think not. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Ezra says, the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah was fulfilled. When the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, God of Israel. He is God, who is in Jerusalem. Brethren, the greater Babylon has been invaded by a king greater than Cyrus. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. Like Cyrus, our king has liberated us from that Babylon in which we were once held captive. Moreover, like Cyrus before him, that greater king, King Jesus, has decreed that we are no more strangers and foreigners to the commonwealth of Israel, but rather that we have come already to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and that having come to Jerusalem, we are to build a new temple, a temple of living stones, a spiritual house, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone and erected for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So let us lift our harps from the willows of Babylon. Let us tune our hearts to sing his praise. Let us sing the songs of Zion. 
But as we sing the sweet melodies of Jerusalem, let us not forget the imprecatory song of Babylon. For the sweet-smelling fragrance that emanates from our temple is not just the fragrance of life unto life in those being saved. It is also the fragrance of death unto death to those who are perishing. Brethren, if we ignore the wrath of God in our preaching, we deceive sinners and we dishonor God. Even worse, if we deny the magnitude and the exactitude of God's righteous vengeance and holy wrath, we unwittingly minimize His sovereignty and we diminish His holiness. And thus, we would have only a form of godliness denying the power thereof. The retaliation that Almighty God has pronounced upon our world is not a lex talionis, not a single law of retaliation, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. As the apocalyptic angel told John, global Babylon's sin have piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her, and she shall be doubly rewarded, as the angel said. Double under her, double for her iniquities. Indeed, God's retaliation against this world is not a lex talionis, but it is in fact a duplici jure talionis, a double law of retaliation. Global Babylon shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God that is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And she shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of her torment will ascend upwards forever and ever. Though the psalm is written in a dark and haunting minor key, we must sing the song of Babylon. For that ominous imprecation will be the last song that unrepentant sinners will ever hear. The benedictory melody that will mark their everlasting destruction from the face of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And as we sing of Babylon's destruction, may we also harmonize with that other voice from heaven that cries, Come out of her, my people, come out, and be not partakers of her sins.